Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here from a misty and dank Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller from the same conditions in southeast London. But the conditions are not like that in South Africa, are they, Richard? No, they've certainly allowed England to win a T20 against South Africa. We're delighted today to be able to discuss this with two guests who can give us deep insight into South African cricket, past and present. First, I'll just mention, if I may, that at the end of this podcast, we're going to have a very important appeal from Mike Atherton on behalf of the MCC Foundation. And just to mention, on passant, there have been a, quite a lot of other cricket played this week. We've had um, a big win for Australia over India in their first ODI. We had a victory for New Zealand over the West Indies in a T20. We've had a four-day match uh, between New Zealand A and the West Indies, in which Craig Braithwaite scored a double century. Important because those are three matches, three major matches, which have been watched by real crowds. In England, um, we've had a, a very important legal case for recreational cricketers when a lady lost her claim for damages against um, a, um, a local council when her, she had an eye injury, very unfortunate, from a cricket match which was being played on one of their pitches. And finally, in England, there's been immense controversy over the decision by the Sussex Cricket League that member clubs no longer have to provide tea at matches. And many people feel that this is the end of English civilization as we know it. That eye injury case, very important, because had it gone the other way, it would have really made it very difficult for league cricket matches in sort of public parks to carry on. And fortunately, I think, really for the future of cricket, very, very important legal decision. Now, we, we have the most enormous pleasure today in welcoming two cricket writers from South Africa. One of them, Mo Ali, is I've known for 20 years. Uh, he is, uh, I know his work extremely well. I plundered it mercilessly for my own biography of, of, of Basil D'Oliveira, his, his lovely book, More Than a Game, about coloured cricket, it was, as it was then called. These heroic band of brothers who play cricket against the wishes, really, or, in, or invisible cricket anyway, during apartheid South Africa. And also Arun Sengupta, who's a cricket author and historian, who's uh, recently published Apartheid, A Point to Cover, on cricket in, in apartheid South Africa and um, and the Stop the 70 Tour campaign now in the these days. These are very contemporary issues. Indeed. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure to be uh, along with you all, uh, eminent uh, people, and <laughs> this uh, great game of cricket. Well, it was an interesting game yesterday, wasn't it, uh, Mo and Aaron? It was, um, in the end, I think a reasonably comfortable win for England, but um, great contributions from Johnny Bairstow, Sam Curran, Ben Stokes. But um, some hairy moments for England. I thought South Africa, uh, coming into this series with less preparation in England, gave quite a good account of themselves. What was your feeling? Yeah, I, th- I thought they, they did reasonably well. They were ahead of the game until that uh, fateful over uh, in which England got 28 off uh, Buren Hendricks. And uh, that uh, that really set them on the way to, to victory. But South Africa were in the game all along and, you know, probably made all the running until that stage. And uh, unfortunately, you know, as happens, one bowler has a bad over and it changes the game completely, especially in T20 cricket. But very interesting. <laughs> there was no crowd at uh, allowed into to Newlands besides the uh, support staff and security and that. And still we had somebody walking in front of the side screen so <laughs> the play was delayed for somebody walking in front of the side screen <laughs> don't know how quite how you manage that but um but the england tour very nearly got called off because of administrative turmoil in south africa cricket and it's now south african cricket's now in the hands of an interim committee who are they who are the outgoing administrators what do you see happens next and you know what's the background to all this turmoil is it what's what's going on in south africa 
a lot. <laughs> Never a dull moment in South African cricket over the past two years or so. As as you mentioned, uh, it came reasonably close to the, the tour being called off because the interim board uh, that was appointed by uh, the sports minister, Natim Tetwan, the sports minister getting involved is obviously an alarm bell because uh, international sporting federations and organizations don't allow for government interference uh, in, in sporting codes, in national sporting uh, bodies. But uh, uh, Natim Tetwa was the sports minister, had to intervene um, because uh, cricket in South Africa was just running into a, a complete dead end. They were fighting among themselves as, as the administrators. Uh, the uh, administrators eventually had to resign. Um, they were forced to resign because of uh, allegations of malpractice, uh, corruption, um, financial um, impropriety. Uh, and, and that report was eventually released yesterday uh, after much, much uh, hesitance and, and uh, kicking against, uh, the, it's kicking and screaming really by the, uh, the, the, uh, the departed administrators of uh, Cricket South Africa. But uh, just to make a long story short, uh, the uh, minister then appointed nine members uh, of uh, who have connections with the game of cricket to uh, to the board uh, included among those are Professor Andre Woodendahl who's a well-known cricket historian uh, Judith February uh, who's a well-known uh, political commentator her father actually Des February played uh, he's mentioned in that book uh, more than a game he's one of the uh, players who went across uh, to play in the Lancashire League alongside the likes of Basil de Oliveira, Kuti, Nithling, Dekabed and those. Uh, then there's Harun Logat as well, the former uh, chief executive who left in a few a few years ago. Uh, there's also Ompili Ramela, who is the uh, former, uh, he, he had to resign as uh, head of uh, the Cricketers Association to take up this job. So uh, these these are the new administrators. The Council of South African Cricket, which is comprised of forty the fourteen uh, presidents of the unions, didn't recognise the new board that was appointed by the minister. And uh, fortunately, a as a result of last minute intervention, they were eventually recognised, and the tour could proceed. It's a relief. Some of the stories we read reminded Peter and I, I think, of um, incidents in Pakistan cricket when they used to have a lot of um, conflict over who was um, running the Pakistan cricket board. And there's one year when I think there were four different memberships of the Pakistan board, but that's another story. Um, but we also saw from here a lot of conflict in South Africa over the Black Lives Matter agenda and whether. South African team would make a public gesture of uh, supporting it. We saw a lot of very hostile comments on Black Lives Matter from some uh, white former test cricketers. And some of the language they used echoed Trump supporters and the far right. And um, the team's not taking the knee, uh, but they are making a gesture, aren't they, in support of um, victims of gender-based violence and of the pandemic. It's nearly 30 years since the official end of apartheid, but this makes it look as though there's still an enduring legacy. Oh, this legacy will be with us for a long time still. Uh, you, must, you must remember the impact and the effects of apartheid run deep in this country. Uh, you know, people were removed from their land forcibly. People were discriminated against uh, like nowhere else in the world uh, by a minority white government. Uh, it, it's a huge psychological impact that it's had on people. And it created imbalances in the society, which is going to take several generations to erase. You talk about 30 years since apartheid. Uh, we haven't even scratched the surfaces in terms of uh, equalizing those imbalances in terms of uh, economic opportunities, let alone sporting opportunities. Uh, if, if you look at, at sporting opportunities, for example, uh, the, the white population had the better schools, uh, they had the facilities, uh, and they still do. And it's only a small percentage of the black population that have become uh, have, have become uh, economically upwardly mobile, and uh, they then have access to those uh, schools with the better facilities, and uh, inevitably they then get access to to better facilities for coaching, uh, to to play the game. Um, but having said that, there are two very uh, important players who came through uh, the traditional uh, schools in their respective uh, areas, Asheville Prince and Vernon Philander. 
who rose to number one as a bowler. But just coming back to the Black Lives Matter, it just shows how uh, divided this country still is uh, because uh, it all started, of course, with uh, Michael Holding's impassioned uh, talk on, on uh, just before the England uh, versus West Indies test series and uh, the George, George Floyd uh, killing in the United States. And uh, South Africans obviously uh, uh, lashed onto that as well. And, and then there was a series of uh, revelations uh, that, that shocked the country, really. I mean, Makaya Antini, for example, was seen as the poster boy for development uh, in, in South African cricket. He uh, came from a rural area, went through a, a, a white school, a formerly white school. Um, and then he revealed that he was actually, he felt so lonely in the South African national team to the extent that he wouldn't even take the bus with the rest of his teammates back to the hotel. He would rather run on his own uh, because he just felt so uncomfortable. Or on the occasion where uh, he did uh, take the bus with, with the rest of his teammates, he would sit at the back. And he just didn't feel part of that team. And subsequently, several other players uh, related their experience of, 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 of racism within the South African national team as well. And even now with Mark Boucher, the uh, coach of, of the national team, uh, declaring that they won't be taking the knee, but rather be wearing a black armband has also caused a serious uh, discussion in the country. But you must remember this is a country in which uh, we have a murder annual murder rate of about uh, 20,000 per year. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the white players or, or ex-white players then came out and said, well, it's not only black lives that matter, but it's all lives that matter. And uh, they were alluding to several farm murders. But... You could also go and, and say, what about, you know, ordinary South Africans who are murdered every day, uh, particularly in the township as a result of gang violence, for example. So, you know, this is an extremely complex situation and it's an extremely complex uh, society in which we live. I must say that it, if you remember the enormous hope when uh, apartheid uh, ended and you had the, the first teams which were non-racial. Uh, to get us to this situation today is quite it's terribly depressing. Arun, you've written a history of all of this. I mean, place what is happening now. I mean, I am, must say the news that Mark Bauscher says we should you shouldn't take the knee. I find extremely odd and troubling. But uh, maybe I'm too far away. Uh, Arun, tell us put all this in, in the in the perspective of history. Looking back, uh, it was quite expected. Uh, I don't uh, mean to say that it was desired in any way, but it was expected that the years and years of segregation uh, would have an effect. And uh, it is cultural inertia, you can call it. And the difference is due to the color, the colonial past, the erstwhile empire on which the sun never set, all these things. Um, these have been facts of the past, and uh, there have been plenty of measures taken to eradicate them. And not only in South Africa, across the world, I would say, but it has taken time. Uh, the, at the systemic and subliminal level, it still exists, cannot be denied. If you look at the stewards at the Lord's Cricket Ground to the ivory towers of the prestigious cricket magazines, everywhere people try to adapt themselves, change the way the things have been uh, to the things that should be, but uh, they have stumbled often. Uh, for example, I'll give you an example from the global world, not uh, South African, but uh, from the English world. If you take a prestigious cricket magazine and all these magazines and websites, they have kind of uh, jumped on the Black Lives Matter bandwagon. And since eyeballs matter a lot nowadays, everyone has written articles, uh, posted pictures of uh, taking the knee and all that. And some of the articles, if you read them, they are not really very deep, like they are very superficial. If some uh, county captain says that in 1980s, there was a West Indian fast bowler bowling in our county team and there, there was no problem. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. In the 1980s, West Indian fast bowlers were ruling the world. And if one West Indian fast bowler was bowling in the team, that is a privilege for the team and not for the West Indian bowler who was treated at the same, at par with the um, other members of the team. So some of the reasoning that has come out, uh, they have not really made much sense to me. And uh, in spite of all the Black Lives Matter movements, tweets, uh, articles, I noticed a particular exception. When this is the 
era of uh, hashtag on this day. On anniversaries, we see lots of things being posted about important events, important birth dates, and so on. And everybody quite missed the 158 by de Oliveira in 1968 at the Oval, including major magazines. And, uh, and that, is, that was the defining innings for Black Lives Matter, if you, I may say so. I mean, uh, there have no other innings which so important in the history of, the, of cricket uh, from the social perspective. Uh, so the world is still like struggling uh, to uh, get on the same footing with all that has gone on in the past century and is still going on. Can, can, can I just make, make another point, uh, yeah. which maybe yeah, is sure. uh, n- not related to cricket, but related to Black Lives Matter. I, I was just at an exhibition of uh, Alfredo Ja, the uh, Chilean who lives in uh, New York now, and he's got an exhibition on the Rwanda killings of uh, 1994. Mm-hmm. Over 800,000 Rwandans were killed in the space mm-hmm. of three months and nobody said a word. The rest of the world were quiet. I know it's, uh, you know, one wasn't even really aware of it. I don't think when it was uh, going on eight hundred thousand. That is a, I mean, it is it is the biggest genocide since the Holocaust by 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 an enormous distance, isn't it? I mean, it's. Uh, and in relation to the population of Rwanda, it's even it's even worse, of course. And that was what twenty six years ago. Mm. Yeah. Um. I don't know if I can just go back to history for a minute. Um, we associate racial segregation in South African sport with apartheid, but really it goes back much, much earlier, doesn't it? I mean, it's cricket in uh, South Africa has been racially segregated ever since it's been um, since it was first organised, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is much older than the legalization of apartheid. You see, uh, African nationalist government uh, just legalized apartheid, gave it a name when they came into power in 1948, and after that it uh, developed. But uh, as a system, it has gone on ever since the 19th century. Non-white cricket always existed in South Africa. Non-white rugby existed. Uh, Maurice Lucan, he brought out a 800-page book on cricket in South Africa before this uh, 1918 and uh, in that uh, there was every match played by white South African teams was mentioned there was only one mention of a colored South African team playing uh, and that was when the Malay side uh, played WW Reed's uh, men in 1891-92 and uh, because and that was also because an official fixture had ended early that was a filler match and uh, if you remember Crom Hendricks uh, made an impression on W.W. Reed, and he said that uh, such an exciting fast bowler, you should take him to England on the next tour just to generate public interest. Yeah. And there was huge opposition to this uh, from South African cricketers, South African, um, like, uh, even administrators. There were suggestions that he be taken as the baggage master and allowed mm. to play in a few matches. And finally, it was Cecil Rhodes who stood in the way to make it totally um, impossible for him to go on the tour. So we see Buck Lelewin, actually, uh, he played. And uh, that was a mix of light skin and prodigious talent, I would say. Years later, his daughter actually uh, objected vehemently when it was suggested that uh, her father was colored. Mm. And... uh, the most of his first-class career was also with Hampshire and not uh, really in South Africa. He had a prolonged test career over 16 years, but uh, his appearances for South Africa were intermittent. The Hendrix moment is the moment where, where basically after which the, the South African test team was definitively not going to allow in anybody who wasn't white, isn't it? it there was a sort of moment when it hung in the balance. That was in the late... 1890s, isn't it? Yes, it that, uh, but know? at the same time, uh, Lelewin did play. Lelewin did play oh, in I the. Realise that, yeah. Yeah, in the eight, he made his debut. I think in the 1895-96 when Lord Hawks team was there, and he played until 1912 in the uh, this uh, right. uh, test uh, tri- three-nation test tournament. But uh, he was an exception, and uh, yeah, there were several. Uh, theories as to how he got away with it. Actually, Patrick Faraday suggests it was uh, light skin and prodigious talent. Um, 
but he played most of his cricket for Hampshire, as we know. And later on, there were cricketers like Talib Saleh and uh, Frank Roro and others. And the after apartheid really uh, was built into the system, there were the Abid brothers, uh, they were immensely great players, but no one really got a chance. And as far as apartheid starting in 1948, D. Oliveira was 17 at that time uh, when the national gov- yeah. nationalist government took over. It was not that before he was 17, he really had great facilities. He never had facilities. <laughs> never had <it. laughs> yeah. And uh, at the same time... I've always thought that Basil would have gone on that... Was it the 51 tour, South African tour of England in 51? He would have been on that. Logically, he should have. He should have yeah. gone. And Peter, as you say in your book over and over again, that he should have played against Len Hutton. He should have played yeah. against uh, Peter May. He ended up playing with the next gen- against the next generation and <laughs> made his debut when he was 34 and still averaged 40 in test cricket, which is it's incredible. Yeah, it's I mean, incredible. Exactly. It is. He really belonged to the earlier generation of... Yeah. Uh, of yeah, that's a fascinating... It is the fascinating thing that he's... He actually Pe- came on the scene when May, who was a little bit younger than him from memory, had retired. And Dexter, yes. likewise, had retired. Yes. And also, his uh, exact contemporary, uh, Van Reinfeld, he had retired. Yeah. And Clive he had Ron grown Reinfeld, up yeah. more or less in the same neighborhood. He had access to excellent facilities. He, in the uh, diocesan college, he was being trained by Peter van der Beil, who was a test cricketer. Mm. And so, and D. Oliver had no facilities at all. So the colored people did not have access to the proper grounds. Uh, segregation, just to make it clear, in 1913, the entire country was split. 92.7% of the land went to the whites, who made up about 20% of the population. And 7.3% of the country's area, it was for the rest of them, for the Africans. And in uh, the famous words of the Sol Platier, uh, the blacks had been turned parias in their own land. And so it was first dehumanizing and uh, being accepted as cricket players came a lot later. Peter, can I, can I just take you back to a comment you made earlier on about the South African test team? Now, let me throw this into the ring. Can we call it a South African test team or should we rather not call it the South African Cricket Association's team because they didn't represent South Africa? I completely agree with that. And I think that there is therefore a, and I think the world needs to take that on board. Uh, and therefore you have to eliminate from test averages all those... Uh, I mean, they were great players, and it's cruel in a way, but I think you have to eliminate them from the test record. Test. And, of course, the complicity, going on from what you just said, there was the complicity of the rest of the world in this uh, gross injustice. Also, uh, you mentioned the, the Crom Hendricks story that uh, he was a shoe-in for selection. He was by far, by all accounts, the quickest bowler. He was by far the best that the English had encountered. And because of his skin color, uh, he was uh, not eligible for selection by the final decree of Cecil John Rhodes and his right-hand man, William Milton. Isn't that the start of the quota system as well? 100% white quota. <laughs> yes. It's, it's, it's funny how history, the perspective of time, gives a completely different way of seeing events all the time. You've got a different telescope. I, I, I'm afraid that's completely true and uh, of course there are other great players who we didn't mention if you record in uh, more than a game like Sek Abrahams and the Abed brothers who who, who Arun mentioned just then and uh, interestingly ba- Basil de Oliveira who was in a, in a very good position to make this comment actually rated Lobo Abed as the best wicketkeeper in the world at, at his peak during that time yeah he rated him at par with uh, Godfrey Evans but he was certainly better than certainly better than John Waite, um, who's a, a decent keeper. John Waite, who said that no, who wrote in his book that um, you know no no non-white player was the equal of any white player in South Africa. Indeed, and and, and that was a commonly held view among the white players as well. Um, if you look at the players who played in the Lancashire League, and then you had people like uh, Peter Pollock, uh, Pat Trumbourne, who either played in international Cavaliers or international Wonder sides against those, they said these, these guys. Even even they went even as far as saying Basil de Oliveira wasn't good enough to play uh, with them. And uh, 
Mm. I think I'm, I'm correct in remembering that Peter Pollock actually built a beamer at Basil de Oliveira in at one of those Scarborough. Well. He built a beamer <laughs> at Basil de Oliveira at Scarborough. I'm, I'm, when, I, when we was researching, when I was researching the uh, the book on Basil de Oliveira, uh, Peter Pollock wouldn't done, would, just wouldn't see me. I have to say, Graham Pollock was couldn't have been more lovely and was so helpful and so honest about what it all meant. Uh, in fact, once I lost Basil, I went round uh, after after the start of the World Cup in two thousand and three. <laughs> remember, Basil walked out onto the into Newlands, and I I saw the way Graham Pollock walked out with him and stood went a few steps behind him, and I thought he was honouring Basil, and then I lost Basil. I was sort of in charge of him, and I lost. We all we couldn't think where he'd gone, and we hunted all round Newlands. Uh, all around Cape Town almost. And eventually I found Graham Pollock in a bar with Basil, talking over old times. I was I was just so moved. Arun, to what extent did uh, cricket and the growing recognition that uh, that cricket apartheid was was terrible play in the ending of apartheid itself? Um it did play a major role in the sense that uh, white South Africa uh, had always uh, been a, a nation obsessed with sports and obsessed with sports. Whenever there was uh, cricket, they went to other countries or other countries visited. They were in the, like, it was a great propaganda uh, opportunity as well. And uh, their players were fated, they were respected and uh, they were um, like they could pretend that things were normal but uh, when this entire uh, stop the 70 tour took place the 70 tour was stopped and also the following tour in uh, australia that was supposed to happen in 71 72 that was also called off uh, it was really a blow because uh, then they were secluded and it was really difficult to um, come out and uh, be a sporting nation as uh, they had always intended to be. So uh, the trade went on like uh, any, there were a lot of uh, different uh, other sort of relationships with other countries. Uh, there was like a political uh, affiliations and political uh, connections with the different countries. But sports is what uh, puts you in the limelight to the common people and there it was quite a big blow and so uh, when we look at it when apartheid ended nelson mandela took sports as one of his vehicles through which uh, he could unify the country as well and we see that in invictus uh, we see that uh, in several accounts when we talked to spoke to paul adams or lance klusner he was always there talking to these people and uh, Anthony, we talked about Makaya Anthony. There's always the message that show uh, your people what you are capable of. So sports, I mean, for unifying the country as well as for um, putting this entire uh, legacy of apartheid in front of the world with a uh, sort of image that was not really digestible for the South Africans. So it played a major role in both these uh, aspects. It occurs to me a lot of South Africans after sanctions played in county cricket in a multiracial environment. Did that make any difference to, to their attitudes, to attitudes to South Africa? Uh, uh, Mike Proctor definitely mentioned that uh, it put them out of the white bubble when they saw uh, these people playing uh, together with the, the other colored people. Uh, when I interviewed Clive Rice in 2013, he said that uh, while playing for Nottinghamshire, uh, he actually played alongside Joel Garner and Imran Khan and uh, Sylvester Clark uh, in the other country matches. And then you develop a respect for people based on their abilities, based on their sporting abilities, and color doesn't come into the equation. So, yes, uh, you know, in South Africa, when we talk about John Wade saying that, uh, yeah, there was no, there is no black sportsman at par with white sportsmen, that's why you don't see them in the sporting fields. A lot of them actually believed in that because they were living in the bubble. A lot of them were uh, trained to think like that. 
and uh, one must uh, realize two other things uh, there was a secret police uh, it was not very um, convenient to go out and speak for the uh, downtrodden people out there and also it was a country which was somewhat secluded television came only in the late 1970s uh, not before that and so um, when these people traveled abroad and saw what was going on in the other countries uh, things were a lot different uh, it was kind of uh, like uh, shade falling in from their eyes like it was they started to realize uh, what the other countries were and uh, how people were treated there so yes uh, county cricket made a lot of difference there you're following that up actually it was one of the major reasons why it was such a disaster for Foster South Africa of Basil Dolivera was going to tour with the England team would he would it would break that evil idea that the black man was or the, the you know the non-white man was in inferior Mo you were brought up you were growing up in that in that uh, period tell us your story about being brought up in apartheid South Africa of which you've now become such an eloquent chronicler let me tell you my uh, grandfather was a grape farmer in the area of Constantia, which now is beyond, uh, it's, it's one of the upper class areas in, in Cape Town right now. And I've still got the medals where he won two bronze medals in 1937 for the quality of his grapes that he exported to England. And uh, for their flowers as well. He had a bus company, one of the first black people to have a bus company. All that was taken away from us, from my from my parents uh, in the 1960s when they were forcibly removed. We moved uh, to, or my parents moved to Claremont, which is a stone's throw away from Newlands. Uh, I was born there in, in, in 1963. We were removed from there, forcibly removed. And Claremont is actually one of the areas that uh, had a, a very, very rich sporting history because of its closeness to the Newlands rugby and cricket mm. grounds, which, as you would probably know, are just on either side of the railway line. So people would actually go to from Claremont to go and watch net practices of the white uh, players play at, at Newlands. And they would also go and watch the, 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 the white players playing rugby's, and that's where they learned their skills. I, I went to the University of Cape Town, which was a formerly all-white university. When I went there in 1981, my first year, we were the last of, of the group that had to apply for a permit to go to the university. You had to have a permit to to go to the University of Cape Town if you were not white. And you had to that state... That was 1981, you said. 1981. Yeah. And you had to state a very good reason why you shouldn't be going to one of the black universities. And there was a course called the Comparative African Government and Law, Kaggle for short, which UCT offered and wasn't offered at the University of the Western Cape, which was the colored university. So that Kaggle class was full of black people because that was the excuse to get into UCT, that uh, UCT offered Kaggle and the University of the Western Cape. For example, black black students weren't allowed to do medicine until uh, the end of apartheid mm -hmm. at, at the University of Cape Town. There was there was a special black university, Madunsa, where, where black uh, students could do medicine. We, we had vastly inferior facilities. Our, our school, for example, <laughs> you, you just had to uh, accept what the physics teacher told you, what happened in the experience, because we didn't have uh, the, the facilities in, in the labs. So you can imagine what it was like for me as a student and for many others who went to university, got confronted with a lab and all the equipment and the apparatus, never having seen, never having used it before ever. It was, and, and I mean, I can give you stories. You know, there were sporting clubs established in areas which were close to the city centre. They were forcibly removed and scattered mm. far and wide. They were, weren't they? Yeah. Into areas where nobody knew each other. You, you, you've come from an area where people were virtually living in each other's houses every day, were playing with each other. Suddenly mm. they were scattered far and wide. Sports clubs just uh, disintegrated as a result of that as well because uh, people just were, were removed far from each other. The sporting grounds, for example, as well, no longer existed because they were taken over by the Group Areas Act and people had to start all over again. And you can imagine how demoralizing it must have been for people. But the spirit persisted. They had this deep love for the sport that they played. They were committed to fighting the apartheid regime. 
And I think that's what gave people a special character in this country, that despite all those obstacles, you had artists who excelled, you had mm. academics who excelled. Um, across the board, people unfortunately had to leave the country to harness their talents and realize their full potential. Basil Jolivier is one example. Precious McKenzie, the weightlifter, mm. who had to go to New Zealand and, and England. Uh, David Barnes who played uh, rugby league for Great Britain in 1979, had to leave here. Uh, Abed had to leave here to go story. play rugby yeah. league. Yeah. Mm. He played for, uh, David Barnes played in the 1979 Great Britain rugby league side. Gosh, yeah. And then there was another guy called Louis Newman as well, who left this country uh, to go and play rugby first in England and then became a coach in, in the Australia rugby. I can, I can, we can talk all day about this, you know, where, there were so many people. Uh, Abdullah Ibrahim, for example, the, the world-famous musician, left this country as well. Um, there, there's so many stories. And, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to be at the Rio Olympic Stadium in 2016 when Wade van Niekerk broke the world record for the 400 meters running in lane eight, the outside lane, 43.03. And my mind just went back to... You know, we had inter-schools athletics where you had the best, the cream of the crop running on grass. And Herschel Gibbs's father, for example, Herman Gibbs in the 1960s, ran a 10.2 on ash, on an ash track. So, you know, there are just the stories abound of how many talented people we lost and the world weren't able to see because of the apartheid system and because they were denied the opportunities. And fortunately, Basil de Oliveira gave people a glimpse of the, the talent that lay in this country that uh, you know, the rest of the world didn't see. It's quite uh, sad. I mean, very sad talking to you both. I mean, the question which I really want to ask, ask is this administrative chaos which South Africa has been going through, is it a symbol or an indication that things are going uh, dramatically into reverse? Mo, for, Mo you, is that what you feel now? There is a big concern, uh, and especially since the, the Andrew Mulangeni passed away, he was the last of the Rivonia trialists. He was the last of that generation of leadership. There, there is a, a big, big question about uh, whether we have a new generation of leadership across the board that has emerged in this country to take this country forward. There's been so much corruption in this country, for example, uh, so much maladministration, and it's, it's filtered through to all sectors of the society. And once again, you, you've got to go back to the impact that the apartheid has had on the system. Uh, and a very, very uh, poignant and significant quote by Smatsun Gonyama, who was uh, one of the ANC's executive members uh, probably 10, 15 years ago, and he said, we didn't struggle to be poor. Make of that what you will. As as far as cricket is concerned, also, you, you still have uh, uh, um, remnants of, of, of the racial divide. For example, when Harun Logat was uh, the chief executive, uh, there, was an allegation, there were allegations of, a, of, of an Indian cabal ruling cricket in South Africa. Now there's talk of a, a black cabal that rules South Africa. So, you know, the moment things go wrong, people immediately look towards race and ethnicity in this country. Interestingly, I was, I was in gym this morning, for example, and we were talking, uh, people were discussing the, the game last night. And uh, Buren Hendricks, who, who is, is a colored guy, uh, conceded 28 runs. And mm. a couple of guys immediately said, ah, oh, the quota system. <laughs> immediately, anything goes wrong, people blame the quota system, <laughs> you know. Um, so as far, we, we have very capable administrators in, in cricket, as we have shown in the past. But people, unfortunately, as some have uh, gone in, in there for self-interest and not to serve the game. If, if we look back to the apartheid era, for example, you had a, a guy like Hassan Hawa, who was the chairman of the South African Cricket Board. These guys would roll up their sleeves at provincial games and go into the kitchen and make lunch, for example, you know, yes, as, as would, president they, of, yeah. of the Cricket Board. Uh, you know, they were, they were serving leaders. We don't have that at the moment, unfortunately. And uh, there, there, there's so much of uh, the allegations of financial impropriety and people are not serving the game, unfortunately. Arud, I'm still trying to get my head around. But explain why, why is it that Mark Boucher, such a distinguished, great player, is not letting 
the South African team take the knee. It just seems so so natural and right. You know, it happens in all the English Premiership matches. Why can't it happen in all places in South Africa? Uh, so, um, if you look at Brian McMillan's uh, Facebook page, for example, the posts that are made, you can make out that uh, this racial divide that was there, it it has come back with a vengeance out there. And some of the stories that he posts, you can see there is a distinct distortion of history as well, which was very prevalent in those days of Orientalist thought, Orientalism, and uh, the way the uh, empire sort of uh, changed the narrative to really justify what they're doing. Like you even hear of things like it was originally a white land and the blacks actually encroached into it. If you look at Brian McMillan's uh, like Facebook page. So there are such a lot of complex uh, currents in the entire country and uh, is a complicated uh, society out there. There is not only the blacks and whites, there are the mixed race, the Indians who were um, supposed to be the Asiatic curse and didn't have a South African citizenship till the 1960s. And so with all this history, it is not a very easy solution. And uh, even uh, a decision whether to take the knee or not, it comes with a lot of uh, undercurrents. So, if I may also just add, uh, Arun, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, definitely. Uh, when when uh, we had the first game after the lockdown, um, amid all this, uh, the, the Twitter storm, uh, some players like uh, Faf Duplessis and uh, ex-player Graham Smith, who was the director of cricket, uh, a number of white players took the knee and they had their lives threatened for mm. doing that. So no. I think that's probably one of the reasons as well. that so uh, Faf Duplessis, had, your captain, had his life threatened for taking the knee. People had, had, had their lives threatened because of taking the knee, yeah. yes. This is very shocking was, to hear this. It was vitriolic. The, the outcry was vitriolic from many in the white community saying that these guys had betrayed, particularly in the light of farm murders, um, which, which is a problem. But then again, farm, the murder, farm murders are, are terrible and unspeakable. But, but not but, only, only Afrikaners are murdered on the farms. There are black farm workers who are murdered on the farms as well. Yeah, yeah but what I mean is that the modern South Africa was born out of reconciliation and love, really, thanks to a, a great collective effort and a very great man. Uh, and to go back to the resentment and hatred of, which is what it sounds like, is so depressing. It is indeed. It is. And and we, we've gone back, many, many communities have gone back into their loggers in this country, unfortunately. And as we speak, and I, I hope I'm wrong, and I hope somebody can, can prove me wrong, the Rainbow Nation is starting to disintegrate. We've just had demonstrations in Cape Town, for example, where the Economic Freedom Fighters, which is a black nationalist movement, they were demonstrating outside a white Afrikaner school in Cape Town because th this school uh, had a school living function for whites only. And even though it's a mixed school, they, the, 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 the class uh, representatives or whoever organized, organized it only for whites and they excluded their, their, their black uh, counterparts or, or colleagues. Oh, that's unbelievable. It, it happens. It happens all the time, unfortunately, in this country. Was that even, was that even lawful? Well, there's a question around that, whether it was lawful. They, they're arguing it was a private function. Uh, and and there, there's, so many, there, there's so many, so many stories going around in this country where, uh, you know, uh, black, black people are still denied opportunities on the basis of flimsy excuses, uh, bending the law where it's possible. So, unfortunately, people are going back into their loggers. The colored community, as Aaron mentioned earlier on, uh, you know, they, 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 they are now kind of gathering behind the lager as well. Uh, saying that during the apartheid era, they were not white enough. Now, during uh, the post-apartheid era, they're not black enough in terms of, for example, housing opportunities. It, it all comes down to uh, competing for scarce resources like housing and health, for example. And they're becoming, and resources are, are becoming scarce, aren't they? I mean, the South African economy is in, in quite bad shape at the moment, isn't it? It's in very bad shape. Uh, so unemployment rate is over 30%. Having a degree doesn't guarantee you a job. I mean, there, there have been pictures of people, for example, with a, a chemical engineering degree standing on the streets and begging. Oh, it's like the American Depression. I went to South Africa in 1994 with the British Parliament's team, the Lords and Commons. It was a, we had a lovely tour immediately after apartheid. We met 
met Nelson Mandela, we met um, Dom and Becky, and um, it was a, you know, a lovely atmosphere, though it did seem occasionally a little bit correct. You know, as of each um, group, racial group, was sort of on its best behavior. And there were obviously, I think, quite a lot of white, you know, quite a lot of our white hosts were absolutely amazed to be, you know, hosting black and colored people in, in barbecues and that. Yeah, yeah. Let, let me let me just add a, add a note of positivity among all the groups. Yeah, I think it was time we had some positivity. <laughs> Gary Kirsten, for example, the uh, former great. opening batsman, uh, great batsman, great yeah. coach as well. He runs a development uh, school in the township of Kailicha. And, uh, you know, they, they're doing fantastic work there in, in Kailicha in terms of providing facilities and providing opportunities. And, and he himself has said that he's amazed by the talent that he's seen there. Uh, it only needs to be uh, given the opportunity. It needs to be harnessed. But government needs to come to the party as well. They need to improve the educational facilities. They need to improve the uh, opportunities for sports people in those townships to make it. Why do sports people from those townships have to leave and travel long distances to go to white schools to be able to get those opportunities? Surely the government should play its role as well. Aaron, give us some, give us some optimistic analysis of the way ahead. Yeah, it will take time to settle down. It will take time to... Um like all the imbalance of the past, uh, it will take time to be balanced again, but uh, we can always hope for the for a better picture. Uh, there are South African cricketers, I've spoken to like Lance Klusner and uh, say uh, Paul Adams from different uh, races, if I may use the word. And uh, yeah, to talking to these people, you see that uh, there is one particular generation, that one particular uh, category of cricketers as we mentioned uh, Brian Macmillan earlier who are still rooted to that particular period to that particular uh, point of view but there are others like the names I mentioned just now uh, who are quite open and uh, to them cricket and cricketers is all about cricket and cricketers and uh, it's not really a, a place for discrimination and all that so uh, with the new generation I hope that this will develop into a better society. But for that, it is very important that people should be aware of what has gone on in the past. People should be aware of the entire history, you know, right from the beginning what happened. And it was not just the 1948 and what happened after that, just uh, what has gone on after that. It's, it's a long history. Why that happened, everything should be known. For example, when he was in uh, prison, like in Robin Island, Nelson Mandela spent a long time reading uh, the Boer Commander's diary, Boer Commander's diary, and it's a Boer War classic. And why was he interested in reading that? Because he also felt that unless you know why this entire divide has taken place and why the society has become this complex, you cannot really find a solution. So. Uh, when people say that you're writing about uh, they stopped the 70 tour, so why do you have to communicate so much about the past? It is that it, you cannot understand uh, the sets of the 70 tour movement if you just focus on the de Oliveira affair and the maybe the nationalist government you just touched upon it. It has a huge history. And then if you don't know that, you will still ask questions. Why makes politics and sports? It's It's not so simple. It's far more complicated than that. Is there any attempt going on? Perhaps both of you may know this. Is there any answers? Is there any organised attempt going on in South Africa to recapture the the lost history of non-white cricket? Yes, yes, yes. and uh, thankfully so as well. And uh, Andre Woodendall, Professor Andre Woodendall, who's an Oxford student, uh, he's he's been at the forefront of. Uh, bring out that history and uh, people like John T. Winch and Richard Perry as well. Uh, I would recommend, I would seriously recommend the book, uh, Too Black to Wear White. It's the story of Crom Hendricks. You know, he was Too Black to Wear White. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, Crom Hendricks has been fleetingly mentioned in, in various books and, and various uh, studies and papers, but yeah, it's actually a book on Crom Hendricks himself. 
and it's, it's just an amazing book that uh, you know people should do themselves a favor to read, and that will show you where the discrimination in South African cricket started, and uh, you know where we've, we've uh, moved to, and and then under Wendell, for example, they're doing a four-part series uh, called Cricket and Conquests on the history, the complete history of South African cricket, because remember. The earlier history of South African cricket that had been written was partic- uh, just almost exclusively from a white point of view. So these kinds of narratives led somebody like Daryl Cullinan, for example, to say in an, in an interview in Indian TV that blacks don't know the game. They, they, they don't have a history in cricket, you know, whereas uh, they've been playing the game since the mid 1800s, uh, 1900s. Well, you're being sorry. a little bit modest, if I may say so. You've played an enormous role in um telling the history of the black game. Um, and I know that because I've read your books and uh, they've really, you've, you, you, you've t- allowed people to, uh, to tell their stories. Andre's other book was of course the, um, an African game, wasn't it? An African I, game. And then yeah. at, at Lords uh, in 2003, when Andre was handing out the book, a very famous cricketer whom I shall not name, well-known South African uh, cricketer, one of the greats of the world, said, oh, not another one of these. No. Makes you feel ashamed. We've known much about the story of women's cricket in South Africa. Does it mirror that of men? Is it the same pattern of being a a white preserve that gradually breaks down? Um, And what's the state of women's cricket now in South Africa? Well, the game has been growing uh, among women in South Africa. White, white women were playing the game sporadically from 1920s onwards. Uh, they were a test-playing country in, in the 1960s, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but, but the current generation of women's cricketers, uh, they did extremely well at the uh, T20 World Cup earlier on in Australia, just before the COVID-19 uh, lockdown. Uh, they went all the way to the semifinals. And uh, it is a, a very... Um, racially mixed side as well. And uh, I think uh, with more role models emerging across the board in all sports, particularly for black women, uh, and you think about the likes of Castor Semenya, for example, the uh, world and Olympic 800-meter uh, champion, um, the, the role models are there. Young people, uh, for example, in football as well, uh, young people are seeing Young girls are seeing that there is a future in these particular sports. You can make a living out of it. And uh, that really is a good thing. And and, and the performance of the uh, women's team at the T20 World Cup and the performance of some of our players now in uh, the Australian T20 League certainly bodes well for the future of the women's game in South Africa. And uh, incidentally, um, this uh, Andre Odendahl's four-part history of South African cricket, the first two parts have already come out. I don't know whether the third has come out yet. The third one is on its way. Yeah, and and the second one actually features two women cricketers on the cover, running between the wickets, and it's called Divided Country. And it actually has a, a section, a separate section on women's cricket as well. So it's an enormous uh, piece of work, immense piece of work, and very very important. The um, that too. It's very encouraging. Is it's well, it's essential that uh, it's well raci- racially mixed, and it isn't just because the the whites get so see, even today get so many better opportunities. Not just a a white team. I mean, how's the what's the makeup of the uh, the current team in this series uh, going on at the moment? Are you talking about the Proteas team? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Team. yeah. Yeah, um, well, you've got Temba Bavuma and um, Kahisa Rabada Lungengiri as the so-called, yeah, I, I hate these terms, but anyway, yeah. you know, black Africans. Uh, because in South Africa, we, uh, during the anti-apartheid struggle, everyone who was disenfranchised immediately uh, fell under the banner of black. We, we, we identified as black. But now, you know, you've got these ridiculous terms of black African, black uh, Coloured, whatever you know, I, I don't believe in them and I don't like them at all. Uh, I, I believe there's only one race in the human race. Um, but because of the the society that we lived in, that we grew up in South Africa, that we were enforced uh, to be categorised in in various racial groups, and that category determined to a large extent your station in life. But you, you've got Lungi Ngidi, Kahiso uh, Rabada, uh, and Temba Bavuma, Black Africans, and uh, Buren Hendricks. 
Who was the off spinner who opened? George got... Linder. George Linder. Yeah. He was a he's, a he's a guy from the from the Cape area. Uh, yeah. Went to that school in Brackenfell <laughs> that they had a demonstration at. <laughs> got two wickets in the first two overs, and before you won two... the game, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think. I think. Hopefully, we, we, we'll reach the stage. Uh, maybe in the next decade or two, where, where these things shouldn't matter. You know, the color of the player or where he comes from, and just the quality, what, what he can produce, what he can deliver, uh, he or she, uh, you know, on, on the field. And uh, hopefully that that will probably in the next 10 or 20 years be the case. And reminded, your remarks reminded me when the great English cricket commentator and writer John Arlott went to South Africa, I think in the 50s, and he had asked to fill in a form, what race are you? He came, he just filled in a human race. There was enormous hope for... Um... South Africa, as I said, in 1994, and particularly that South African cricket, South African sport generally would be a force for good in creating the new rainbow nation. Well, um, and our own, those hopes still still valid. Can, um, can sports still play the role in integrating, developing South Africa? As long, I believe, as long as the heart beats, as long as you can breathe, there's hope. And... Uh... The South African rugby team, for example, would you believe it? The South African rugby team, a, a sport like rugby, uh, characterized as a traditionally Afrikaner sport, but it isn't. Uh, blacks have been playing this game like cricket. They've been playing the game since the uh, late 1800s. Uh, the rugby team represented on merit the demographics of the country, and they brought together the country. And I'm sure if, if the... Uh, cricket authorities and the administrators get their acts together. We can do the same in, in the sport of cricket. There's enough talent. Our school system, whether it is in, in rugby or cricket, produces a phenomenal number of players. And unfortunately, those players, many of them get lost, uh, either immigrating to New Zealand or England. But if we can retain that pool of talent in this country, there is certainly lots of hope. And, and and a sport like women's football, for example, we've got so many women's footballers playing in the European leagues at the moment. It's it's unbelievable. We probably have about between 15 and 20 more than we have men's footballers playing in the European, league, European leagues at the moment. But the bottom line is sport cannot solve our problems unless we provide economic opportunities for people. We try and equalize the situation as far as possible. We're not going to resolve the problems of this country because once people get economic opportunities once they are empowered economically things will start to change gentlemen thank you very much for an absolutely fascinating conversation very very deep very rich one i hope we'll pick up on another time for now we have to leave you but first we have this um, very important announcement which i mentioned at the beginning of the podcast from mike atherton on behalf of the MCC Foundation. At 60 centres across the UK, we provide free cricket coaching and match play to more than 2,500 talented young players from disadvantaged and underserved backgrounds, driving diversity in the game, supporting mental well-being, empowering and inspiring talented players of any race, gender or background to have confidence and to progress in the game. Thanks to the Big Give Christmas Challenge from midday on December the 1st to midday on December the 8th, online donations to MCC Foundation can be doubled. Please donate and help us to transform lives this Christmas. A donation of just £20 will give a young player the opportunity of 10 weeks of coaching. One donation, twice the impact. For more information, search MCCF Big Give. I'll certainly be giving to the big give. You know, we've been talking about the problems in South African cricket, but there are many problems along class lines in particular in, in British cricket. And girls and boys from disadvantaged communities, they don't get anything like the opportunities of, of some others. And uh, the more we can do to rectify that and bring out the brilliant talents in the inner city areas and elsewhere, uh, the more we can do. I'll be donating. So will I. It's a very good cause. Um, please use the link with this po podcast to contribute, but uh, please restrain yourselves until Tuesday, the 1st of December, to do this, because after then, the value of your contribution will double. 
Um, it only remains for me once again to thank our two brilliant guests for all their insight into South African cricket. Likewise, uh, thank you very much indeed. It was an absolute honour to be part of this discussion and uh, hopefully we can do it again soon and hopefully we'll uh, paint a brighter picture of South African society and uh, cricket in South Africa. Yeah, thank you for having us uh, and it was a pleasure and uh, hopefully we'll be able to do it again sometime. Goodbye from me, Richard Heller, in a still foggy and damp southeast London. And it's goodbye from me, Peter Oborn. The mist is lifting a little here in Wiltshire.